need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. Hi there, welcome to She Leaders Podcast, in part by China Business Cast. This is a special series focusing on female leadership. She Leads is a platform for empowering women, building community, and offering mentorship for all female professionals in China. This international network was created to build long-term valuable relationships among women and promote female leadership in the whole workplace. My name is Anita. I'm the founder of She Leads. And this is Pearl, project manager of She Leads Chengdu and the co-host of She Leaders podcast. She Leads emphasizes the role of female leaders in professional careers, and we want to bring you interviews with inspiring and successful female leaders in China, and share with you their exciting life stories, work experience, professional insights, and career advices. Today, we're honored to have Lisa Rinkin with us. Lisa represents the interests of the Victoria State of Government, Australia in China, and has worked in strategic and technical leadership roles in China for the last 15 years. Prior to her role at the Victorian government, Lisa was the manager of international initiatives and the head of China program for the Burnett Institute. She was also the vice president of the Victorian branch of the Australian China Business Council and is a senior lecturer at Monash University. With international experience that has spent an impressive 20 years taking on roles from healthcare to humanitarian development, to commercial projects, Lisa has really been a force for good with regards to effective leadership to strengthen initiatives throughout the developing world. Lisa is also our mentor in Chile's Empowering Female Mentorship Program. Thanks so much for being here today, Lisa, finally. So <laughs> I think for all the audiences, we have to say we've been trying so hard to get Lisa on the show for a while since she's just an incredible person to talk to. Um, but she was so busy cruising around China with her government for the past month. So we weren't able to manage until now. Um, just for the background, Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about what, what you did for the past two months? Sure. And thanks, Anita. It's really my pleasure to be here. And I'm sorry it's taken us so long to, to have this catch up. Um, so I represent, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, one of the state governments of Australia. I represent the Victorian government here in China. And Victoria has a really long relationship in China. It stretches back for a very, very long time. And a lot of, of this relationship rests on the vision of our leaders. And so a big part of my job is very frequently to host our senior VIPs from our government when they come into market. So over this last couple of months, we've had our Premier, our head of, head of government, our Governor, the head of state, um, as well as a couple of ministers with their specific portfolio interests. And part of my role as the representative here in China is to help uh, develop a program for them and then host them as they move through China having official meetings, banquets, um, events, signing of agreements and so on. So, yes, I've been rather busy over the last couple of months across about 10 different cities in China, but uh, it's a real privilege, this part of the role, to see our leadership in action as they interact with the Chinese government and our key stakeholders here in market. Wow, 10 cities, you must be tired. <laughs> 
So yeah, we do we do we do notice that you manage the few collaborations with the government um, from the Chinese side during the trip, and uh, at a lot of like banquets that you mentioned and signing ceremonies, you're almost always the only female at the table. So I think it's pretty common right now to see in politics and diplomats. Um, it has always been kind of male dominant. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. I'd, I'd like to say that it's changing, um, and in some areas I think it is. And, in fact, in some ways I think China does much better in this area than Western countries like Australia. Mm-hmm. So in the trade and investment world that I work in um, as a government representative, quite often I am the only woman in a role like this. Um, but I'd, I'd like to emphasise to all the listeners that really... This kind of discussion is kind of tricky to have because in, in some ways I'm not really bothered that I'm the only female. I am I am very focused on being the absolute best at, at what I can do uh, and the best person in the role should always be the person in the role. But I think it's fair to say that in lots of countries it's only more recently that women are finding their way through the education system and the political training and... Um, the commercial world, the corporate world, to be able to find themselves in these positions of of senior leadership. So these things take time. Um, I would say that I'm treated with absolute respect um, from my Chinese government counterpart's point of view. I find China in some ways is, is much more accepting of women in senior leadership roles because of the respect of the position or the hierarchy. So if you're a senior rep in the Chinese government, you are just the senior rep. It doesn't really matter whether you're a man or a woman. Whereas I think sometimes Western countries, and I'd include Australia here, there's still a lot of unconscious bias. And so I find within my Australian government counterparts, for example, there's um, often less of a respect than I find from the Chinese government counterparts. So it's, it's a very complex question that you ask. That's very interesting that you mentioned you feel like China's side is more accepting. Um, do you think that happens to all levels in politics or just more towards like the senior levels? I think it's about respecting the position and the hierarchy rather than the person. Right. Um, so, for example, in, as you well know, in Chinese culture, you know, the hierarchy is incredibly important. So if you've made your way to, into a senior position, right. is that that is very highly respected. Um, so regardless of, of, in a way, who it is that's occupying that role, it's the role that's respected. Whereas I think in Australia I can think of some really unfortunate examples in our recent history. Uh, for example, we had our first ever female Prime Minister um, not long ago um, and she was eviscerated by Australian politics and the media um, in a way that was very, very disappointing to someone like myself who's waited a long time to see a a feisty, intelligent, capable leader rise to the top of Australian politics um, and happens to be a woman. Um, But she was eviscerated because she was female. So they wanted to talk about her clothes. They wanted to talk about whether she had children or not. You know, we don't don't have those conversations about male politicians. It's it's a particular treatment that's reserved for women in those positions of power. Now, that would never have happened in China because if you had risen to the position of president um, or a senior Chinese government official, you would be respected regardless of being male or female because you were in that position. So I think in that respect, yes, China is quite 
different in, in the way that it emphasizes leadership and hierarchy above and beyond gender. Right. There's more restriction to talk about, like a certain level of uh, seniority. Um, so have you always worked in this area? It seems like uh, um, it's a pretty obvious um, situation in uh, politics and diplomat. Uh, not really. In fact, I'm quite new to working within the Victorian government, although I've worked alongside the Victorian government for many years in my career and, and also our federal government, the Australian government, has often uh, funded many of the projects that I've worked on. My career really started in social justice and it won't surprise you to know that I studied um, feminist literary theory and politics at university. Right, my um, so I started out very much in the social sciences and, and humanities and I went on to do humanitarian work in the health sector for many years. Um, I worked in a lot of different African countries before I first came to China and then I spent um, 10 or 11 years working in a medical research institute based in Australia but, but working in places like China. So I've worked with government and for government on government projects before but I've never actually been a member of government before. So this is quite a new role for me. It's like I've, I've jumped the fence. I'm on the other side of the table now, which is a really interesting experience. So what was the turning point to make you jump over the fence? Well, to answer that question, I'll, I'll reference something that I posted in our WeChat group recently, the She Leads WeChat group, which was about stepping mm -hmm. outside of our comfort zone and going into what has been termed the courage zone. So a couple of years ago, I made a very deliberate decision to leave my job um, that I'd been in for those 10 or 11 years with nothing to go to. I just knew that I was ready for a challenge. I wanted to move onwards and upwards, um, but I didn't quite know what that was that I wanted to do. And so without the security of having a job to go to, I simply resigned from this position. Now, a lot of my friends and family thought that I was crazy at this time because I was in a, a senior job. I was in a role that had been created for me. I was, um, you know, reporting up into the, the board and the CEO, the director of the institute. Right. So I was in a what would appear on paper to be the perfect position. But the truth was that after I'd done that role for a couple of years, I'd achieved some fantastic things and I was very proud of what I'd done. But I really had two choices. I could either continue to do what I was doing and do more or less, you know, mm -hmm. more of the same, um, or I could step out and do something different and something that would stretch me. And so I took that decision. I stepped out into my courage zone and I took the leap. I left the job mm -hmm. and I spent a couple of months um, walking in Europe. I walked uh, an ancient pilgrimage route called the Camino. I spent three months in nature just wandering around with my thoughts and meeting people and being inspired and refreshing myself. And then interestingly, on my very final day on that pilgrimage, I got a phone call from uh, a colleague in the Victorian government in Melbourne, uh, letting me know that they were recruiting for this current job that I'm in now. And would I be interested? Cause they'd like me to apply. So there you go. The universe. Yeah, it all comes around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you heard the universe calling. <laughs> Something like that. But I think, you know, if I hadn't stepped out out of my comfort zone um, and really made that decision well in advance, I'm not sure that I would have been brave enough to have taken up that opportunity because I would have been safe in my existing role and my existing life. So I think sometimes really stepping out and making bold decisions, it does bring reward because we yeah. open ourselves up to opportunity. 
definitely. And uh, you never know where the potential leads for the for your next future step. Because like sometimes you can get very comfortable in in your current situation, and uh, it's hard. It's hard to face all the risks risks outside. But you never know like what's going to happen next if you don't go out of the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. And sometimes I think we need some encouragement from others. So I was curious about how do you encourage others to take risk, and why is it important for us to do so? That's a great question, Pearl. So I often I often do talk about risk taking because mm-hmm. um, I think sometimes we can be very focused on risk, risk management. And I think sometimes it's interesting to turn the question on its head and say, it's not about are we are we experiencing too much risk, but actually are we risking enough? Yeah. And that's not a question that people tend to ask themselves. Uh, when we're evaluating decisions, we talk about, oh, is this risky? What is the risk? What, what, what will I potentially miss out on if I do this? Or what will this result in? We're very focused on the risk, but we rarely ask ourselves in our day-to-day life, Am I taking enough risks? Because I think when we when we risk, when we step out into our courage zone, mm-hmm. that's where we grow. It's yeah. like um, when you try something for the first time, when you try something you know is going to challenge you or something that you're not particularly good at or an area of your life that needs attention, that's where personal growth is. We don't grow when we're comfortable. Uh, so I think I, I do spend a lot of time talking to people that I mentor around risk-taking, but in that positive sense of are we actually taking enough risk? And I think uh, on a slightly more humorous side, I also have been known to say um, when people are talking about something that they're not comfortable doing or they're not sure if they should do it, you know, ask yourself the question, is anyone going to get hurt? Is anyone going to die if I do this? You know, really we can tie ourselves up in knots. Uh, about making decisions and taking risks. And the reality is that often the worst that can happen is that it doesn't go well or that we don't achieve what we want to achieve and we we at least learn then that that's not the way to do it or we should try something different. So failure, really we should try and find a better word than failure because I think we just keep trying until we're successful. So I'm, I'm very encouraging of risk. Yeah, I totally agree. So, like, what what are you gonna face if you try something? You either gonna succeed or you're gonna fail. But if you fail, then take it as a learning lesson. You you can always make it out of it. You can always see the positive side of it. So, uh, talking about learning, like, what would be the biggest lesson that you've made in your career or life? Well, that's a great question, and I, I've learned lots and lots of lessons over my <laughs> lifetime. Um, yeah. I think uh, it's hard to know which one to focus on, to be honest. There are lots of lessons learned. I, I think one of the key ones for me is, is really how we see ourselves isn't necessarily how other people see ourselves, and people can't read our minds, and so communication uh, is just so critical, I think, often when I think about mistakes that I've made or lessons that I've learned along the way, you know, a lot of it ultimately comes down to communication, either yeah. failing to communicate properly or choosing not to communicate um, or, in fact, needing to find different ways to communicate. Communication is absolutely critical in letting people know what we want, how we're feeling about things, um, listening to other people, 
and how they feel about things. I think probably communication is the single biggest area that all of us um, continually should be should be working on. But the other thing I'd say about, you know, learning lessons or making mistakes is the power of reflection. Yeah. I think knowing yourself uh, is one of the best things that you can invest time and energy into, whether that's keeping a journal, which is something that I do, whether it's making lists every week of things that you'd like to achieve or whether it's an annual plan of, of high-level goals that you'd like to see or five-year objectives for your career. It doesn't really matter what it is or how you plan, but I'm a big fan of self-reflection mm-hmm. because really if we don't know ourselves and we don't know where we want to go, how can we possibly drive ourselves there? So just uh, trying to reflect to what you just said there. <laughs> Learning from you already. Um, the, I, I have two questions. Uh, first was um, regarding that communication part that you mentioned. Like I've noticed like in the Chinese culture and Western cultures are quite different in terms of uh, communication. I, I would say like in, in the West it's more direct and in China it's probably more indirect. How, how would you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question because, in fact, there's a lot of research now that shows that different cultural groups around the world uh, do have very distinct communication styles and preferences. And so as someone who spent my entire career working cross-culturally, I think it's really, really important to understand both my own communication preferences Mm -hmm. and then the communication preferences or styles of the people around me. So um, this can be really basic things like learning Um, how people prefer to be addressed or whether people appreciate being looked in the eye directly or not. You know, there's lots of cultures that I've worked in where I've had to really significantly adapt and change the way that I that I speak and present and, and communicate. But yeah. a, what's the sorry, what's the um, what's the biggest culture shock you had when you first started working in China? I think the social boundaries between people. So remembering that I came from many years of working in African cultures. um, I had come from an environment where, you know, it was not unusual for us to sing in the office in in South Africa, for example. We would begin most workshops and meetings with dancing. Uh, There was always a lot of hugging. Um, in and out of my my colleagues' homes, cuddling babies and and spending time on the weekends. Um, It was a very warm, communal um, environment to live and work in. In China, I find the social distance between people is, um, you know, it's really very different. And, of course, the concept of maintaining face and, um, again, that respect of hierarchy means that as now sitting here in China as the manager of a, of a team, for example, I don't spend time in people's homes. I, I, I don't even know the names of um, the babies that my colleagues may have had. You know, there's, there's a social distance here that is, was quite profound. When I moved from South Africa to China, I found it very, very different communicating with people here where people were concerned about um, No, I was the boss. I was the manager. So they didn't want to share very um, sort of detailed personal information with me. Not not that that's what I was asking for, but um, it was a really a much more structured hierarchical way of being in a team. And um, as you know from knowing me, Anita, I tend to be personality wise, I'm quite a 
a warm and gregarious person. So I love being with people. Yeah, you always go after the personal information, for sure. (laughs) No, (laughs) Um, Actually, the later we talk a lot, talk a little bit about taking risks, but sometimes I would rephrase the taking risk as seize the opportunity. But sometimes we don't know if it's an opportunity or not. So my question is, how to identify the opportunity. And is there any tools we can use? Yeah, that's a great question, Pearl. Um, I often use something as simple as a matrix. So um, basically looking at, particularly if you're weighing up um, different options or opportunities, is really, um, it's a very visual tool. Just on a piece of paper, you can actually draw up the pros and cons for each of the options and look at them. And Mm -hmm. I think... What makes that exercise really useful if you're a visual person is that you start to see it in black and white in front of you, um, what's important to you. So if you if you use criteria like, um, you know, is this going to make me happy? Is it going to build on my strengths? Is it going to pay me enough? Whatever your criteria are for taking up the opportunity, uh, drawing up a list of pros and cons really starts to help you weigh up your options. But I also think that there's something that we often don't think about is, is it going to make me happy? You know, mm-hmm. we we often think about, oh, is this a good job or is this a good opportunity or is this a good offer? But being really clear, and I'll go back to our earlier conversation about knowing yourself really well, if you know what you would like in your life to make you healthy and happy, then that should be the biggest criteria that we use when we're evaluating options or opportunities is, is this opportunity good for me? Does it serve me? Is it going to get me to where I want to go in life? Is it going to keep me happy? Is it going to make me healthy? You know, these should be some of the questions that we ask ourselves when we're evaluating opportunities, not just, oh, great, it's a senior job title or it's a big salary package or, uh, you know, whatever the whatever the opportunity is that you're evaluating. So there's a very interesting book written a few years ago called Thrive by a woman um, based in the U.S., her name's Ariana Huffington. She started Huffington Post, which I'm sure many of the readers will be familiar with. Now, in her book Thrive, she talked about some of these questions around too often we, we, we look at opportunities with a very singular perspective around uh, the job description or the job title. And she said, actually, you know, we're kind of asking ourselves the wrong question. Um, it's not do I want this job, it's is this job going to make me happy? Um, That's a great book to read, a very easy read. Um, If anyone's looking for um, some further information around the question you're asking, Pearl. Mm, Yeah, that's great. Definitely going to check that out. Yeah, I think it's really important to to, to consider your mind as a very important criteria because nowadays everybody's all about working, 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 and we go so fast in, in this, like, developing pace so i think i think yeah mental health is definitely a very important issue for anyone and now also like Mm. the pressure of finding a work-life balance can be even greater for professional women so i remember on our last kickoff mentorship program event that you said there's no such thing as work and life balance can you just elaborate that a little more (laughs) <laughs> yes, I remember the shocked faces in the room when I said that. I think um, I think it's become a bit of a mantra that people have actually essentially built up a really false dichotomy between life 
and work. I think we've forgotten that work is a part of our life. Um, so I think trying to look at work and then fitting in other bits of our life is, is not a helpful way to look at it. I think we should be looking at our life in a very holistic sense and work is simply a part of that um, rather than something that our life gets squeezed in around. So for me, balance is around knowing what your boundaries are and it's about knowing what keeps you happy and healthy, as I mentioned. Um, and then not allowing work to take over other aspects of your life so that you maintain, you know, a really well-grounded sense of well-being, a very holistic sense of well-being. I know here in China there's the jiu-jiu-liu, uh, which people yes. are talking about a lot, as being somehow something to aspire to. And I find this um, very disturbing, to be honest. Yeah. I know there's a very hard work ethic um, and that's to be applauded. And I know often in the entrepreneurial sort of startup tech world that China's so good at that there is a sense that if you're not working you know, nine to nine, six days a week, then you're going to get left behind by everyone else. But where does that stop? I think that, that feeds this sense of competitiveness and it just encourages people to do more and more and more and more and more, which will ultimately be to the detriment of their health and well-being. So I think for me, it's about working smarter, not harder. Wow. So not longer hours necessarily, but in a more clever way. So to be strategic with your time, establish boundaries, be effective and efficient in your work, not simply do more of it. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's really good point. I think nowadays, like a lot of people have, uh, have just like taken the work, all, like the work have taken over their life and uh, it's not healthy. And uh, I've also just read recently um, the book actually recommended by Lisa, <laughs> The Daring Leadership by Brandy Browns, and she's talking about the the importance of the downtime. Because nowadays we always say like, "Oh, you gotta work hard. You gotta like use take good use of your time." But sometimes like people start to think, "Oh, should like if I'm playing with my family, if I'm doing some exercise, I'm actually wasting my time to like I could have been working with this time." But that's um like that's the downtime that you actually need to re-energize yourself if you don't have that then like that's just gonna you're just gonna be eaten up by work mm, mm, completely completely agree completely agree and you know there's also that very famous saying that you know when we're old and dying nobody ever looks back on their life and says gee I wish I spent more time at work um, <laughs> yeah. the things that we yeah. regret you know, the things that we're likely to regret when we're old and dying are going to be, oh, I wish I'd spent more time with my family or I wish I'd climbed that mountain or I wish I learned to swim or I wish I was healthier or I wish I took time to walk along the beach more often. You know, these are the things that we will regret if we do not do them. No one will ever be saying, gee, I wish I went to more meetings and I wish I spent more time slaving over my computer. Yeah, exactly. Same reality. <laughs> yeah, didn't they say that eighty percent of people would like spend eighty of their um, like life saving on the last twenty percent of their life? So mm. <laughs> yeah, so we mm. yeah, I think well, we've got a we've got a good advantage in Chengdu. Chengdu is all about the quality of life. I guess that's why you chose here to live too, right? It is a wonderful place to live. I'm very, very happy to be living in Chengdu for these last couple of years. I think 
people really do have uh, a quality of life here that's fantastic to see. It is quite different to other Chinese cities where I've lived over the last, you know, however many years. Um, people seem to value that time with family, you know, even the, the culture of Mahjong. You know, I walk down the little local streets near where I live here in Chengdu and I can hear the clickety-clack of, of Mahjong tiles well into the night because people value that time sitting around, chatting, drinking, smoking. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful testament to people maintaining that balance of life um, in this busy, crazy world that we live in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, actually, uh, one thing that Chengdu trusts me is that people here they don't have a sense of guilty to enjoy their life. They just think they just think it's the right thing to do, right? You got life, then you should enjoy. Mm. Mm. Think, mm. Exactly. Would you, would you think that's also more of a, like a feminine kind of uh, mind thinking because that we would value the the life perspective more that uh, there's no like oh, like we're all like independent like hard-working women but it's not necessarily saying that life has a, um like work is the only part of our life we do see like more more valuable parts around us yeah look I think it's, it's a fascinating um question actually because I think in some ways men are much better at compartmentalizing their life. Women, in my experience, tend to feel uh, responsible somehow for the various aspects of their life and try to maintain. So, for example, you will hear a woman say, you know, I, I'm, I'm a senior executive in my, in my workplace, I have a family, I have a child or two, um, and I have friends that I try to maintain and I feel guilty when I'm working because I'm not with my children and then I feel guilty when I'm with my children because I'm not working. You know, women tend to, in my experience, feel the responsibility uh, to kind of make everyone and everything okay. Men, on the other hand, if they're at work, they're at work. They're focused, they're at work. They're not worried about whether they've done the housework or the grocery shopping or what have you because they know that someone else is taking care of it, whether it's an IE or whether it's their wife or whether it's their mother-in-law or whoever it happens to be in their family situation. Men tend to be much more compartmentalised in the way that they approach responsibilities and they don't tend to feel the guilt, in my experience, that women do. And I think that's a really interesting gendered question because I think women are socialised to feel guilty uh, if they're not taking care of everyone and everything, whereas men are told it's okay for them to go out and achieve something for themselves or go out and play golf on the weekend or go out and spend time with their friends. There's, there's not the same dialogue in our societies around, well, you should be at home reading bedtime stories to your children or you should be at home cooking a meal. Um, we have these really strictly sort of gendered roles and Women, unfortunately, I think, have internalised a lot of that and so feel guilty if they're not trying to manage everything. Um, we should learn something perhaps from our male counterparts and feel more free of our responsibilities and um, try not to be guilty if we're not doing everything for everyone all of the time. That's just unreasonable to expect. Yeah, definitely. I think 
women just have so many on their plates so that they need to take care of. So how would you like emphasize for, for young professional females when they start to encounter like these kind of uh, situations? How do they maintain this balance as they build their careers? Well, I think it's really important to establish boundaries very early on about what you personally find acceptable and not acceptable. Um, and that's different for everybody and it's for no one to judge. It's, it's a very personal decision about boundaries. Um, but I also think it's important as a young professional to begin as you intend to go on because these patterns get set very early in life. So to be clear about uh, what you find acceptable and not to um, set those boundaries, to communicate those boundaries to other people and then to really try and live your life by them. So to make decisions proactively about your life and your career plan that keep you where you want to be. So, you know, I often ask people around um, me that I'm mentoring, you know, what when you're setting out in your career, you know, what type of person do you want to be? What is it that you want in your life that will make you happy and healthy? And look at where you are now and be really clear about how you're going to get from where you are now to where you want to be. Um, and to keep, I'm a visual person, so I often I often suggest that people do write things down or have them up on the mirror or write them in a journal, whatever works for you, because to be able to refer back to those goals and objectives and boundaries, um, it's really affirming that when you're faced with a decision point, should I do something or not, you can go back to those those boundaries and those objectives that you have and say, well, is this going to serve me? Is this going to get me to where I want to go? Um, and be proactive about putting the important things in your life, in in your life as anchor points and building the other stuff around it. So if exercise and being healthy is really important to you, make that the anchor point and fit your job in around that, not the other way around. So yeah. a bit of prioritisation probably to summarise. That's that's really inspiring, and but I think sometimes a lot of women they just don't have the consciousness that they should to make some efforts to balance their life, or they don't have the tools, or they don't know how. So I think a lot of things that Shirley's have done is to promote this kind of consciousness that women should to fight for themselves, um, but. I think sometimes we just need like a mentor, right? And you have been such a good mentor in our female leadership mentorship program. So um, do you have a mentor or have you in the past, how did they had empower you? Yeah, that's a great question, Pearl. I think everybody needs a mentor um, because as I often talk about in our She Leads group, you know, being a mentor is like being a mirror. Uh, mentors don't have all of the answers. Mentors aren't perfect people. Mentors have a skill set that allows them to um, nurture uh, young women coming up uh, through the system and holding up that mirror, which is the reflective mirror of mentoring, which allows people to see themselves perhaps clearly, perhaps uh, in a different light. So to me, that's the real value of being a mentor is being a non-judgmental person uh, that has experience um, to hold up that mirror to younger women saying, you know, look at what, look at what, look at yourself and, and see what I can see. You know, there's loads of potential, there's strength, there's ambition, there's vision. Um, mm -hmm. Look in the mirror and, and start to see it for yourself. So that's the real value, I think, in being a mentor is being a guide 
and a reflective mirror. And yes, I've had I've had mentors over my career as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently working with a woman back in Melbourne whom I admire greatly, and we chat on the phone maybe once a month wow. and share ideas and strategies and so on. So I think it's a very healthy very healthy thing to do um, and I would encourage everyone to take up mentoring either as a mentor or as a mentee because I think these relationships can be very nurturing and very supportive and we don't we don't often find people willing to invest in each other without an agenda so um, as I say to the women that I'm mentoring at the moment you know I'm not your boss yeah. I'm not your mother mm-hmm. um, I'm not you I'm not your girlfriend I'm not your auntie uh, you know I have no agenda for anything specific that I would like to see you doing with your life other than being the best person that you can possibly be. And that's a lovely role. It's a real privilege uh, for me to be in that role with women here in Chengdu. And I've met some fabulous women as part of the She Leads program and highly recommend it to anyone. How do you identify like who is a mentor that suits you the most? I think that is a really great question because... A great mentor is not necessarily someone that you would choose to be a friend. So, for example, it's not just about liking somebody. I mean, obviously, you need to be comfortable with someone to be in a mentoring relationship. It's not easy to be open and receptive to growth, personal growth and reflection and learning if you're feeling um, uncomfortable in any way. So, you do need to be comfortable with a mentor, but you certainly don't need to be friends with them. And, in fact... I've learned some great lessons in life from people that I found pretty difficult to work with um, because they have a very different communication style or they have a very different life experience for whatever reason. So I'd, I'd encourage people to not think about mentors as somehow being, you know, a new best friend. That's not really not the relationship. Sometimes as a mentor, you have to be pretty tough and yeah. you have to help your mentee reflect on questions or issues or behaviour traits or, or or so on that are a little bit confronting and you have to be a bit tough. But as long as those tough questions are being asked from a position of respect and with a genuine intention to help somebody grow, then I think they can be really helpful moments because, as we spoke about earlier, it's really when we're outside of our comfort zone that we grow. So stepping outside a nice, warm, easygoing, friendly chat and stepping into some difficult territory is sometimes exactly what you need. So I've been challenged recently. I was just mentioning um, uh, my mentor in Melbourne at the moment. She really challenged me in January about something. I was complaining about a situation, work-related issue, and she really pushed it straight back to me. So that mirror, she held it up, she reflected back to me, and I, at the, in the moment I was really shocked Um really shocked uh, and a little bit confronted, to be honest. But I've gone away and I've thought about it and I knew that she did it with the absolute best intentions and she is 100% correct. And, in fact, I've taken her advice. I've I've changed my behaviour around that particular issue and it was absolutely the right thing to do. And I don't think I would have found a solution to that particular dynamic if she had not challenged me in that way so I guess that's a long way of answering your question about how do you identify a good mentor how do you find a mentor that suits you someone that you respect someone that you admire someone that has a skill set that you can learn from but not necessarily 
just the nicest, friendliest person you've ever met in your life, but someone who's going to push you a bit uh, in a respectful and nurturing way, but someone who's going to challenge you. Yeah, I totally that's where you'll grow. Yeah, I totally agree with you because I have a mentor and I really learn a lot from him. But um, sometimes I was wondering, um, because you know, in a relationship, you can you can't just always get something from others. You sh- sometimes you should, uh, I would say, like give something to to others, right? So, is there anything I can do to, or I can give to my mentor? I was curious about that? I don't think that it's a one-way communication. I think a mentoring relationship is is often a very two-way street. It's often uh, a very mutually beneficial relationship. But I don't think from a mentor, and I'm speaking now as a mentor, I Mm -hmm. certainly don't expect anything from my mentees. I, I always learn from them and I always appreciate their sharing of their insights and perspectives because I would I will often learn from them. But I think the mentoring relationship is one of um, a more experienced person sharing with a lesser experienced person. And so the, the tendency is that the, um, I guess, the information flow or the advice flows in one direction. You yeah, asked a very good point, that. though, about whether what, what what you should do as a mentee for your mentor. I think consistently being open and honest and being prepared to be vulnerable and being prepared to um, do the do the hard work, I think that's the best reward that you can give your mentor is by demonstrating your willingness to be open and your willingness to push yourself, even if it makes you uncomfortable and doing something that perhaps you would prefer not to be doing, try it. Um, that's the best gift you can give a mentor is to actually really push yourself to grow. Thank you. I really thank you. I really learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we're very, very grateful to have you as a mentor in our mentorship program, Lisa. You have clearly created a huge impact on many young professional women that you can't even imagine. I think mentorship is important to everyone, but especially to women, because women struggle to find that lifting hand where they can grab on and seek advices from constantly. I think this is uh, one of the missions of She Leads as well. We're trying to create a network or a place where women can come together to learn, to share, and to support each other. So we've talked a lot about the importance of uh, having a mentor. What What do you think is the importance of being a mentor? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important and it, and it's also a huge privilege because in many ways the young women that we mentor in the She Leads program, you know, they place their trust in us. They open themselves up, uh, they share personal insights and experiences and they, they are vulnerable in the sense that they sit before us saying we're struggling with something or we we have a decision to make and we don't know how to make it or there's a part of my life that I'm not you know, 100% satisfied with, I, I would like some help, please. And that's that's a very beautiful um, honour that, that the women in our program give to us because they, they put their faith in us and their trust in us to provide non-judgmental, supportive guidance and encouragement to help them reach their own personal goals. So I, I consider that to be a huge privilege and one that I take very, very seriously. So there's a couple of things about being a mentor that I think are important. I think being non-judgmental and keeping your own baggage out of the conversation is very critical. So again, I come back to the point about being self-aware. When I'm discussing with a mentee, 
Um, it's not about what I think and it's not about what's going on in my life and it's not about what I want to achieve with my career. I'm entirely focused on them, even if the goals that they're setting themselves would be different from the goals that I would set myself. You know, there's nothing to do with me in that sense. So I think it's really critical to be non-judgmental and open. I also think it's important to be professional. Mentoring is not a friendship relationship. Uh, you might end up being friends with someone that you mentor and that's a lovely outcome, but that is not the purpose of a mentoring relationship. So I think it's, it's key for us to be professional, uh, to maintain boundaries, to maintain confidentiality. Uh, these are things that will help young women trust that they're coming to a safe space to open themselves up and ask for advice. And I also think, lastly, that it's very important as a mentor to know what our own limitations are. Um, it's not about being a counsellor. It's not about being a relationship counsellor. It's not about having all of the answers. You know, if one of my girls asks me something that I just don't know, um, it is incumbent upon me to say, I don't know. Great question. I'll help you find the answer. I'll go away and do some research and see if I can find you some resources. But I actually don't know that either. Don't pretend to know stuff that you don't know. That's uh, that's going to erode trust um, and it's not a professional way to behave. So, look, everyone deserves a mentor in their life. Everyone deserves people around them to encourage them and help them be the best possible version of, of who they want to be and none of us have all of the answers none of us are perfect so I think um, you know it, it's just a fantastic program the She Leads program to be involved in to acknowledge that everyone uh, deserves opportunities to grow and learn and uh, if this is a place if this is a program that people can come to to find support and encouragement and skills and information and advice and guidance uh, then that's fantastic. So you've done an amazing contribution to society here in Chimduanita by setting this program up and it's a real privilege for me to be involved. You inspire me. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> no, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, for <laughs> anyone who doesn't know, she has been an amazing mentor for Shelly since she has, in, has uh, helped so many young professional women here and you're amazing. You're definitely a mentor of mine. Um, so just uh, last question, um, last session here, we're going to do a quick Q&A. Um, so I'm going to ask you 10 questions and if you can just answer them um, in one sentence with no thinking, just come straight to me. <laughs> sure, no problem. <laughs> okay, so let's do this. Um, okay, describe yourself as an animal. <laughs> a cat. A cat. Okay. What's one thing that you must have for your day? Coffee. I was going to say double espresso. <laughs> <laughs> you read my mind. You read my mind. <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know, uh, Lisa's also got a nickname, uh, double espresso. <laughs> Our strong woman. Okay. What's your favorite place in the world? Oh, that's a tough question. I've been to so many places. I, it would have to be a beach, I would say. Um, maybe a beach um, in Australia called Noosa, where I did some growing up in as a teenager, but definitely a beach, the ocean. The ocean, okay. <laughs> so how do you de-stress? Uh, exercise usually, but also big believer in essential oils. So having, you know, aromas through the house, massage, yeah. 
Nice. If you would reborn as any new form, where would you be? Oh, I'd love to be a dolphin in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> By your favorite bitch. <laughs> yeah, just swimming around in circles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, tough question. Um, probably in a slightly different role, um, possibly still here in China, but maybe somewhere else in the world. Really, who knows? And that's, that's the exciting part. Who knows? I'll take China as, the exit, as an answer. Because <laughs> you don't want me to leave Chengdu. I know what you're up to. Yes, absolutely not. <laughs> okay, who's your role model? Mm, it's hard to pick one individual person. Actually, I find that question impossible to answer as I don't have a single role model. I have lots and lots and lots and lots of examples of people who inspire me, so I'll, I'll plead the fifth on that one. Okay, that's fine. Um, what's your favorite book? Oh, another impossible question, Anita. I read probably uh, <laughs> four or five books at a time. Um, I read probably on average, I finish at least one book, maybe two a week. I'm a big reader. At the moment, I'm reading a book about the Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright from the US, and I've oh. just finished reading Michelle Obama's autobiography, Becoming. Oh, that's a good one. So I guess they're, they're my favorite books of this week. Okay. Well, that's uh, more than one sentence anyways. You already broke the rule. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. If you, if you won a lottery, what's the first thing that you would do? Oh, pay off my debts, pay off my family's debts and go on a fabulous holiday. <laughs> nice. Okay, last one just before we wrap up here. Hit me with three short pieces of life events that you think are especially relevant for a young woman today, professional or not? All right. Number one, look for opportunities to grow. Step out of your comfort zone and get into that courage zone because that's where all the benefit and reward is. Secondly, if you're a young leader, a young manager, don't ask anyone to do something that you're not prepared to do yourself. That's part of being a leader. And third, Be honest, be brutally honest with yourself, about yourself, as well as with everybody else. That's awesome. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Your insight is so valuable to us all. And again, we are super proud of you having you as our mentor in our programs and you're a true cheerleader. Thank you, Anita. It's really my honor to be part of the program and it's been great to chat to you both today. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for your listening. To hear more about Lisa, Shilis, and Shilis mentorship programs, please subscribe to our WeChat official account, Shilis, and stay tuned for more interviews with inspiring women like Lisa. Thank you. See you next time. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.